Establishing data link. Four, three, two, one. You are listening to the ABI 1.0 podcast, a podcast for the curious. Howdy, and welcome to the ABI 1.0 podcast. I'm your host, Terry Thompson. Can you guess what this episode's going to be about, given the time of year, this being middle of June? Uh, well, everybody gets to do their version. Now we're going to have our own foray into hurricanes. Uh, we were visited by our <clears throat> not-so-good buddy, Army a few years back, and uh, that's still recent memory. Are hurricanes getting stronger? Are there more of them? Are their names getting funnier? I don't know. We'll find out, though, when I return. Hold on to something. here in Kentucky at the Wild Turkey Distillery, and I want to let you in on a little something. The folks here and I have created a new small batch burger, Wild Turkey Long Branch, refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch. Real bourbon, no apologies. We here at the ABI 1.0 podcast enjoy hearing from our listeners. Feel free to comment anytime, either through email, voicemail. You can check out our Facebook page. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, Flickr, heck, almost everywhere. Now, we've given up tying notes to bricks and throwing them through uh, people's windows. <laughs> that got a little annoying and uh, very expensive. it might be helpful if we uh, visited what synonyms there were for hurricane which is a noun well if you're ready for this here we go ado alarms excursions ballyhoo blather bluster bobbery bother bustle clatter clutter that's chiefly dialect 
coil commotion corroboree, which is Australian, disturbance, do, for furar, fun, furor, furor, fuss, helter-skelter, hoo-ha, also hoo-ha, hoopla, hubble-bubble, hubbub, hullabaloo, hurly, hurly, burly, hurry, hurry, scurry, or hurry, scurry with a K, kerfuffle, that's chiefly British, moil, pandemonium, pother, row, ruckus, ruction, rumpus, shindy, splore, which is Scottish, squall, stew, stir, storm, to-do, tumult, turmoil, uproar, welter, whirl, willy-waw, and zoo. So, the next time you're telling somebody about a hurricane, you don't have to use necessarily the word hurricane. There you go. I got that out of Merriam-Webster's thesaurus. You're welcome. Did you know that the first person to start naming or assigning names to tropical cyclones was the pioneering Australian weatherman Clement Ragg, who began giving names to tropical cyclones in the late 19th century, initially using the letters of the Greek alphabet and characters from Greek and Roman mythology. The first U.S. named hurricane, well, unofficially named, was George, which hit 1947. The next one given a name was Hurricane Bess, named for the First Lady of the USA, Bess Truman, in 1949. I wonder why that was. I, I thought she was a nice lady. And what's the worst hurricane of all time? Well, if you're talking about loss of life, that would have had to have occurred here in Galveston, Texas in 1900. This before they named storms. And on this uh, report coming up, I want you to pay particular attention to the uh, announcer talking about and being pretty happy that the 2017 hurricane season has been quiet so far. Well, I remember correctly, which I do, 2017 was the year of Harvey. We've just closed out the first month of the 2017 hurricane season, thankfully with no major storms hitting the U.S. And as we look at these beautiful images of Galveston, Texas, we're reminded that the next Katrina or Andrew could be brewing any day now. But bad as those two storms were, they were nothing compared to the storm that hit Galveston and the Texas coast back in 1900. At the time, the Weather Service did not name hurricanes, but even without a name, the Great Storm will never be forgotten. The idyllic beaches of Galveston, Texas. More than six million vacationers come here each year, frolicking on the serene shores of the Gulf of Mexico. It's hard to believe, seeing it today, that this peaceful place was the epicenter of the greatest natural disaster in the history of the United States. It was 1900, and Galveston was thriving. The largest city in all of Texas, a booming population, building fortunes from Galveston's busy commercial port, shipping cotton, and receiving goods from Europe. Galveston was on an incredible growth pattern. It was, without a doubt, the queen city of the Gulf. Uh, it was it rightfully earned that title. 
September 8, 1900 began as a day a lot like this one, with clear skies and calm seas. But the skies suddenly turned black. The weather took a terrifying turn. The good people of Galveston had virtually no defense against the great storm sweeping in from the sea. A Category 4 hurricane lashed the island community. It carried no name, as was the practice of the time. Winds up to 140 miles an hour, and worse, a storm surge of seawater 15 feet high overwhelmed the unprotected city, leveling buildings and homes. In 1900, the storm on September 8th came across the island and pushed back, pushed water and pushed wind across the island, destroying most of the houses and many lives were lost. In an instant, half of Galveston was gone. Homes along the shoreline ripped off their foundations, the storm smashing them into kindling. One of the heartbreaking stories of that terrible night took place at St. Mary's Orphanage, a Catholic home for children built right on the shoreline. Nuns, terrified by the rising seas, tethered themselves to their children, determined to protect the little ones from being swept away. The nuns decided it would be safer to tie the children together in groups of 10. But the sisters' brave attempt to save lives would be in vain. By the time the howling wind subsided and the ocean returned to its normal level, an estimated 12,000 Americans were dead, 6,000 of them right here in Galveston. It is still to this day the deadliest natural disaster in U.S. history, a horrible event commemorated by this poignant statue on the Galveston seawall. When the storm passed, dazed survivors emerged to a Galveston they could not recognize. City streets filled with mountains of rubble. The debris from the houses and properties and animals and those over there accumulated during the course of the storm became a wall of debris that protected the northern part of the island from the rest of the storm and water. So we know that that debris line extended for maybe two miles and in some places was as much as two stories in height. Galvestonians dug through the rubble, desperately searching for survivors, but locating virtually none. They found only bodies, among them 10 Catholic nuns and 90 orphans, still tied together. Only three of the St. Mary's orphans survived the storm. I often think about what they would have experienced walking out their door on the next day and looking at what had happened and what was around them. But this battered community would not be beaten. Neighbors pitched in, helping neighbors and finding solace wherever possible. The Grand became a place of priority for the city because it was a place of healing. It was a place that was non-religious, non-political. It was a place where people came to gather. Galveston's Grand Opera House, though severely damaged in the storm, became a source of comfort and hope for the shaken residents of a once grand city. They could weep together over the horrible loss of life and the devastation of that storm, or they might come and laugh for a moment and forget about their problems. And though the great storm of 1900 brought this booming city to its knees, the people of Galveston rebuilt and fortified, constructing a seawall bolstered by granite boulders 17 feet high and six miles long to face the gulf and protect them from future storms. They also pumped sand on top of obliterated sections of their city, raising the island as much as 18 feet near the seawall. Any surviving buildings that could be jacked up off their foundations were lifted to the new grade. Some were simply too large. This ceiling that we're standing under is very low. 
but it wasn't built that way. No, it would have actually been 13 feet. The floor is eight feet higher than it would have been in the original structure. And they filled in the island as much as 18 feet in parts. And so the, it feels like the ceilings come down and the floor has gone up. But it was a phenomenal project. Now talk about that. I mean, in those days, they didn't have caterpillar tractors and you know, excavators and things like that. It's amazing what they did. They used horses and manpower and pulleys and wagons and somehow they raised so many buildings in this city and, and protected them from future storms. The great storm took the lives of one out of every six Galvestonians. Some who did survive simply moved away. Galveston would never again be the biggest city in Texas. But in the months and years after, the determination and ingenuity of those who stayed breathed life back into a community that Mother Nature left for dead. The spirit of the people of Galveston is really what's important to remember. And it's that spirit of we're not going to give up, we're going to make this our home, we're going to handle the storm if it happens, but we're going to come back and we're still going to be a great city for the future. Hard to believe, 10 to 12,000 people died in that storm and even here in new york they had fundraisers there was a big fundraiser at the waldorf thrown by william randolph hearst the newspaper man and the keynote speaker a guy named samuel clemens mark twain they raised fifty thousand dollars to help with the rebuilding of Galveston, which in those days was a huge amount of money. Well, that was a beautifully done story. The historic photos mm -hmm. were incredible. And I think the most fascinating part was not just the ingenuity that was shown there in rebuilding that community, the engineering feats involved, but I can't help but think, uh, you know, this is more than 100 years ago, that it had such a tremendous impact on generations of families. And, and we are so fortunate and so blessed today to have you know, the satellite imagery, we know these days when hurricanes are coming and we can prepare for them. Back then they had absolutely no warning. not in a rush to be most popular. Not in a rush not to be. Real bourbon, no apologies. If it's for you, you'll know. Ah, thank you. Wild turkey, it'll find you. Mississippi Delta, also known as the Yazoo Mississippi Delta, or simply the Delta, is the distinctive northwest section of the U.S. state of Mississippi that lies between the Mississippi and Yazoo Rivers. Music and the lower Mississippi River Delta are synonymous and indeed the Delta is the cradle of American music. Musical styles within the Delta region are diverse and it was here that the blues, Cajun music, jazz, and Zydeco evolved. In August 1969, something else evolved that changed how we look at hurricanes. 
August 17, 1969. A weekend music festival called Woodstock is making national headlines. But on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, the big story is Hurricane Camille. It will be the most powerful hurricane to hit this narrow shoreline in the 20th century. Four decades later, Hurricane Camille remains fresh in the minds of those who survived it, including the group of young reporters who risked their lives to cover the story. I'll never cover anything bigger than Camille. And never in my lifetime will I ever experience anything as severe as Hurricane Camille. I'm sure of that. It's part of what's dubbed the American Riviera. 23 miles of white sand beach along the Mississippi coast. The Gulf breeze found here provides a rare respite from the oppressive summer heat. And come August, it lures tourists and residents alike. But on August 17th, 1969, the Gulf breeze brings an unwelcome guest. A compact hurricane named Camille is shrieking north. This storm just continued to build, continued to build as it came across the Caribbean, came over the, the tip of Cuba and emerged into the Gulf. By 9 a.m. that Sunday, its course shifts slightly to Mississippi. The National Hurricane Center predicts it will strike the coast that night. The barometric pressure in the hurricane's eye is already so alarmingly low, area officials launch a door-to-door -door campaign pleading with people to leave town. Now, some like police officers and firefighters and officials like that had to stay. But for whatever reason, whatever their reasons, some decided to ride it out. Boy. A watch is issued that weekend for the Gulf Coast. But at first, forecasters predict Florida will get the brunt of the severe weather. By Sunday, they realize Hurricane Camille's eye wall will pass over Mississippi, not Florida. They begin urging Mississippi residents to evacuate. We're at the point now where all we can do is cross our fingers and pray. Most past Christian residents leave town. Among them are Billy Bourdine's wife and four children. She packed up and hauled it, <laughs> kids and all. Let, let me alone. Along with running the family plumbing business, Billy is a volunteer fireman. He stays behind to help the town prepare. We started trying to get people out of the lower places around here, which is close to impossible. They don't want to hear you. I went down and helped them get the boats out the hall. Some residents put off leaving until they've battened down the hatches. We got up that morning of the storm and, uh, and boarded all the windows on the ground level move furniture to the upper floors. Mississippi native Ben Duckworth lives in past Christian's Richelieu Apartments. The five-year-old complex offers residents sand and surf, starting at $120 a month. I found the Richelieu and fell in love with it. It's setting, it's had such a dramatic view of the, uh, of the beach and the gulfs. 
Ben plans to evacuate north to his parents' house in Jackson. But he spends the afternoon helping police move cars to higher ground. When he finally returns to the Richelieu at 4 p.m., he runs into some elderly neighbors. I bumped into the Matthews. Mrs. Matthews broken her hip early in the year. Mr. Matthews said, if you and some of the others are going to stay, would you watch after me and my wife? As rain begins pounding down, Ben decides to ride out the hurricane at the Richelieu with the Matthews and a handful of neighbors. His landlord invites them to spend the night in an empty top floor apartment. We thought we'd have dinner together in that third floor apartment. We were exhausted. I know I was. And uh, plans were just to have a quiet evening. Hurricane Camille is the perfect example of the risks that you take if you stay in the path of any hurricane, especially the strong ones trying to ride it out. Things can go south, or in this case, north, very quickly. On the top floor of the Richelieu apartment building a few miles away, Ben Duckworth and seven neighbors sit anxiously in the dark. You could hear the wind howling, glass breaking in windows. It's like a war zone. Ben steps out to the building's enclosed walkway to assess the danger. I looked down into the stairwell, took my flashlight and shined it down there. I saw the reflection back. And then I realized we had level water a foot below the third floor slab. Ben returns to the apartment where a neighbor asks for an update. I think in my mind I knew something bad was fixing to happen and I was telling her that I thought would be okay when it was just like a moan and the building you could just imperceptible tremor went through the building and then I realized water was coming in the apartment what Ben and his friends don't realize is that the flood surge has swept the building off its foundation the Richelieu is sinking fast and the only way out is up a split appears in the apartment ceiling. Standing on furniture, Ben and a friend tear sheetrock away from the crack. They manage to create a gap big enough to escape. People started coming up out of the apartment through the ceiling. And as you come up through the hole in the roof, they were instantly gone into the darkness. Naturally, when I stuck my head up through the hole in the roof, glasses were the first thing to go. So uh, I was blind. It was so dark. There was so much debris in the water. You just went with the water. You had no other choice. Six others scramble up to the roof of the Richelieu building. Within a few moments, each one is plucked up and carried off by the current. Only three survive. The water slams Ben into an oak tree. And like Malcolm Williams, Ben grabs hold of it, trying to keep his head above water. I dug in. The only way you could breathe in that wind was to force my nose up into the bark of the tree. Because if I took my face away from the tree, it just sucked the air out of you. And so I put my face up into the tree and was sometimes underwater, sometimes above water. Overhead, Camille's eye passes over the neighboring town of Bay St. Louis, seven miles away. And then I remember that the direction that I was swinging in the tree changed abruptly. And that was, I think, when the eye passed. The force of the hurricane strips Ben's shirt and shoes right off his body. For the next 
five hours, the tree is all that separates him from the elements. That night, I genuinely thought that I had died and that I was in my own type of hell. And I just imagined that I, this is the way I was going to spend eternity. And uh, I thought about the others. I wondered, you know, why am I here and, and they're not? All night, Hurricane Camille holds past Christiane under siege. When dawn approaches, it finally leaves town. Flood water from the 24-foot hurricane surge recedes, revealing the crushing extent of destruction. After Camille, 68 square miles were totally destroyed on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. The bombing of Hiroshima destroyed three square miles total. So look at the magnitude of this thing. The comparisons between atomic bombings and these storms is appropriate. I mean, that's what it looks like. Overnight, Camille has claimed the lives of 132 people. 13 of them are named Williams. Up in the tree where he's balanced, Malcolm Williams wonders if anyone in past Christiane survived the hurricane. The sound of voices suddenly rouses him from shock. I heard two people calling out that gave me a little hope that someone survived, but I didn't really think that it was, you know, my family. One of Malcolm's cousins, who is out looking for members of the Williams family, finds him. You ever seen a cat get on a tree and cling to it? That's how he found me. Malcolm's cousin helps him to the makeshift hospital set up at Pass Christian High School. Not until the next day does he learn that though his mother and 10 of his siblings perished in the night, his father and brother-in-law survived. In fact, the morning after Camille, Malcolm's father stumbles upon Ben Duckworth wrapped around an oak tree. Ben is so traumatized at first, he thinks Paul Williams is a hallucination. I just thought tricks were being played on me. And until I realized that there was a man standing down at the base of that tree, uh, that's the first time I knew that I was alive. The right way isn't always easy. Wild Turkey Bourbon knows something about that. I'm here to shine a light on some trailblazers, innovators, groundbreakers. I want to know what they do, how they do it, but most importantly, I want to know why they have an unwavering conviction to do what they do. I always believe I can. I can do it myself. Hey, let's just do it. We're doing half-ass. Let's talk turkey. the ABI 1.0 podcast enjoy hearing from our listeners as a matter of fact we get ideas from you contact us via email voicemail we have a Facebook page oh we're on Tumblr uh, Twitter uh, Instagram uh, let's see uh, I wanted to put flyers out but uh, general manager said what are you talking about paper doesn't grow on trees
Here's an odd fact about hurricanes that I found out. Has there ever been a hurricane with two eyes? And the answer is yes. And they can be formed in two different ways. Far less common two-eyed hurricanes occur when two storms literally collide in what's known as the Fujiwara effect. Hurricanes caught in the Fujiwara effect meant not actually collide, but they will begin rotating around a common center. Wait a second, wouldn't that be known as the nose? <laughs> I don't know. Let's face it, trying to ride out a strong hurricane or just really, uh, I'd say anything over a Cat 1 if you're not in a very secure structure, is the equivalent of you know, you knowing that uh, a nuclear weapon is coming your direction to your home, but you refuse to evacuate or go anywhere because you want to hang around and look at the pretty fireball. Same thing, same result. I'm afraid that as global warming and climate change in general uh, really catches hold, that we're going to start seeing tropical cyclones in areas once thought impossible. And those areas thought possible, they're going to be much, much stronger. So for all my pals and audience members that live around a body of water in general, uh, take care, eyes to the sky and take nothing for granted. That's going to end this episode. I'm your host, Terry Thompson. See ya. It's not nice to fool Mother Nature. You have been listening to the ABI 1.0 podcast. Process complete.